Hello and welcome to Smart Prosperity, the podcast, a bi-weekly show about the green economy in Canada, the current affairs, the politics, the business, the technology, and the ideas at the intersection of the environment and the economy. I'm your host, Eric Campbell. On today's show, banking on a climate-friendly future, I ask RBC's John Stackhouse about the price and the profit to be made of meeting Canada's climate goals, and what exactly is the role of a financial institution in getting there. After that, we'll hear a 60-second summary of a major new report, and we cap it off with our regular summary of five other things happening in the green economy this week. That's today's agenda. Let's get started. Yep, the best things in life are free, but the transition to a climate-friendly future? Well, ah, that's going to cost us money. And according to a new RBC report, it's going to cost us about $2 trillion between now and 2050 for Canada's transition. Now, that's a big number, and my next guest is going to help us wrap our heads around it. How does $2 trillion fix Canada's climate problem? How does the money get used? Who's going to pay it? And how big is the return on investment? He's also going to tell me what role a bank plays in making it all happen. Here he is, John Stackhouse. John is Senior Vice President in the Office of the CEO at RBC Royal Bank of Canada. John, thanks for being on the show. Eric, thanks for having me. John, let's start with that big headline number, $2 trillion to get Canada most of the way to net zero carbon pollution. How did you arrive at that number? It's a huge number. Uh, As a total aside, it would take you 60,000 years to count to that number if you want one by one. Uh, (laughs) That is an aside, but but an interesting aside. It's mind-bending, and it should be. This is an extraordinary number for an extraordinary challenge. We did the report to try to break it down. Often we look at the climate crisis as just a cost to society, and we wanted to know what the cost was, but also what the investment requirements and therefore the returns on investment might be. And as we break it down, it works out to about 60 to $80 billion a year over 30 years. Again, big number, $60 billion or $80 billion, mm-hmm. but that's roughly 2% of GDP over time, and that is actually manageable. We spend that amount on lots of other priorities. And when you think of this as an investment, that could be a good way to absorb a lot of the excess savings that are out there and keeping interest rates low, being a drag on economic growth. So seen as an investment, the $2 trillion becomes an opportunity, not a cost or burden to society. John, how does how does 60 to 80 billion per year, that does make it a little bit more bite-sized and a, and a bit more manageable. Um, how does that compare to what's being spent on climate change in Canada nowadays? So back of envelope calculation, a warning, we figure we're spending roughly 15 to 20 billion a year on climate action right now as a country. Mm-hmm. So we're looking at quadrupling that big, uh, big jump. Okay. Most of that comes from the private sector. 
Most of that comes from companies trying to make themselves more efficient, investing in new technologies, investing in new processes. A good chunk of it comes from households uh, through the products we buy, but also the investments we make in our homes that makes mm. them more energy efficient, also makes them more valuable on the uh, on the market, which increases their asset value, our net worth, and on it goes. So a positive flywheel begins when we start to turn the requirements into investments with returns on them instead of costs that we've got to tax each other more for to, 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 to pay for. Okay. So so continuing to break down this this 60 to 80 billion per year required over the next 30 years in order to transition to a net zero economy. Um, how, how does the that split between government and private sector spending um, make out? I mean, you've, you've made the case that a lot of the spending is happening in the private sector and by households. You know, ultimately, is, is, there, is there a formula for how much needs to come from government and how much needs to come from the private sector and households? It's a great question. And there isn't a formula. With any technology, with any transition or transformation across the economy, and we've seen this through, uh, through history, modern history certainly, the upfront costs require more public investment to offset a lot of the initial risk with new technologies or hmm. uh, even new, 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 new approaches to business or entire new sectors. And then as we scale, as consumers adopt technologies particularly, the cost gets transferred to the consumer and the risk gets transferred to the consumer and the public requirement goes down. That's a natural transition. We can't predict whether that happens in 2030 or 2040 or maybe sooner. Uh, And it's going to happen differently in agriculture than it does in building technology than it does in electric vehicles, for instance. Okay. But overall, we're going to need more money from private investors than from public, and we're going to need more public investment early on. Got it. So ultimately, the private sector is going to be accounting for most of that $2 trillion investment, but certainly at the front end, uh, government has a greater role to play. Huh. And remember, the private sector is you and me and everyone listening to this and 38 million others (laughs) across across the country. Uh, We and what we do as consumers, uh, as homeowners, as investors, has an incredible impact. And where we start to devote our, our money and our savings, uh, we'll start to drive the transition and accelerate it. Interesting. So when we're buying that electric vehicle or when we're buying um, that uh, heat pump or you know that more efficient uh, furnace or more efficient windows, those those that counts as spending towards this $2 trillion uh, goal that your report says uh, we need to hit. Exactly. If you're doing a renovation, that's an investment. Uh, That increases the value of your home. Most of the money required is going to be in that spirit of investment that uh, grows the overall economy, but also grows uh, the net worth of individual Canadians. So I I, want to get to, you know, what we need to be investing in and spending on, because your report has some really um, detailed uh, answers to that. Uh, but first, one of the one of the points that really jumped out at me uh, in the in the report is you say there's there's not a shortage of private capital, and and again, you you've just been talking about kind of these excess savings that uh, that households have right now, and and the private sector also. Um, so in other words, you know, the sixty to eighty billion per year is, is sitting there in people's pockets in people's savings accounts. The shortage, according to the report, is of investable projects. Can you explain that? 
yeah, a lot of people are sitting on a lot of money and companies are also uh, sitting on on savings, uh, which have accumulated so significantly that interest rates are not budging, not budging nearly uh, nearly enough. Now, as governments pull back, as central banks pull back uh, from the crisis, that's going to have some, some 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 natural changes. But remember, we're in a long period of what some people call secular stagnation, uh, resulting from a lack of opportunities for a savings glut in much of the world to get invested into new economic activities. Mm. And so when we say investable projects, we mean projects, companies, new enterprises, uh, infrastructure that people and organizations and pension funds can invest in, not for charitable reasons, not to hide away their savings, but to grow those savings, to get a return, to pay for future needs. That's the economic model that's generally worked for society. And the more sustainable that economic model, the more sustainable that economic model becomes, the more beneficial it is to both the economy and the environment. John, are, are you saying that we can't just all continue investing in only Tesla? <laughs> Tesla is a, uh, a really good example. Is there's a company that not so long ago didn't exist and is now worth a trillion dollars. So when you look at the scalable opportunity, but also the growth opportunity of this transition, Tesla is not a bad case in point. Mm. There's a company that's come from nothing to a, a trillion dollar market valuation, created lots of jobs, lots of economic activity, lots of tax revenue uh, in, the, in the process. And we think we can see that across pretty much every sector of the economy. Okay, and, and and let's come back to that. But first of all, I know a lot of a lot of people are curious about how this sixty to eighty billion per year or two trillion over the next thirty years needs to get spent. And your report has answers uh, to that. It, it looks at six areas of the economy for focusing these investments on: oil and gas, electricity, buildings, transportation, heavy industry, and agriculture. And it gets specific. You provide the number of additional greenhouse gas reductions that can happen in those sectors at what level of investment are there are there kind of one or two of these investments to or one or two of these areas of the economy that really jump out to you as being good value for money yeah and thanks thanks for noting the pathways because again we wanted to break this down uh in all of our lives but certainly in business when a problem seems insurmountable often the best thing to do is break it down break it down into manageable chunks. And so we've got these pathways that not only are manageable, but also show a bit of an ROI, a return on investment uh, for the billions of dollars that mm. we'll need to go into each pathway. What's the gain that we can expect over 25 years in terms of emissions reduction to collectively get us to net zero and the gain of economic uh, returns for the investors as well as for society at, at, at large that's getting behind these initiatives. In terms of specific opportunities, let's turn to buildings. We're all familiar with buildings. By investing in building retrofits, uh, commercial buildings, uh, homes, but also institutional buildings, think of hospitals and schools and universities that are often energy bleeders, we will improve the efficiency of those buildings, so less cost for those organizations or for families uh, with respect to their homes but also a greater return because those assets, those buildings become worth more mm. uh, if they are more energy efficient. 
And the technology is pretty much there. In fact, one of the things you'll note in our report is that for each of these pathways, we cite a couple of Canadian innovators, uh, most of them new firms, startups, that are leading technology revolutions in each of these areas, building tech, for uh, for instance, to show that Canadians really can lead uh, lead this way to use technology and to do it in the private sector, working alongside government. I'm I'm glad you buildings was the one that uh, jumped out at me also because you know I'm just I'm just scrolling through my notes here on the report and. And the numbers for that one are uh, 65 megatons that uh, your report identifies uh, additional GHG reductions could come with investments in buildings at an annual cost of $5.4 billion. So, you know, if we're talking about an overall investment of 60 to $80 billion, 5.4 is a small amount of that. And 65 megatons out of, you know, roughly 730 megatons that we, we want to uh, take out of the economy uh, seems like a pretty good deal. Um you know, I'm going to encourage all listeners to to go over and check out the report. We've got a link to it from uh, this episode's webpage. Uh, counting up these additional megaton reductions um, that you've tabulated in this report. From electricity, we can cut an additional 11 megatons. From oil and gas, an additional 92 megatons. From buildings, 65. From transportation, 93. From heavy industry, 35. And from agriculture, 31. People doing math might notice that, you know, that doesn't all add up to 730 megatons, which is what Canada currently uh, emits in greenhouse gas uh, emissions every year. Um, What's the explanation for that? Yeah, we begin the report with a blunt sentence that Canada has a math challenge. The numbers, you're right, aren't adding up. There's a gap there. And it's a gap that will need to be filled by, we, 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 we know technology is going to get us a good ways there, but we're still going to be short. We may be a third short of our goal for 2050. Mm. And we're going to need new technologies, things that don't exist now or certainly haven't been scaled uh, in a commercial way. And that means more investment in research and development. But we're also going to have to look at behavioral change at the way all of us act as consumers, as citizens, as neighbors. We've been talking about some of the things uh, many of us can and should be doing. Many of us may be doing it already, but we're going to have to do more of that. And as more and more Canadians invest themselves with a lot of enthusiasm in the transition, how do we excite all of us of every age and stage with the technologies that are out there that allow us to become better climate citizens without having to kind of move to a dark cave to you know, steal the stereotype <laughs> uh, that allow us to continue to lead progressive, exciting, engaging, uh, vibrant lives, whether that's rural or urban or somewhere in between, um, but without the climate consequences. Okay. So, so current technology uh, can get us two-thirds of the way, maybe three-quarters of the way towards a net-zero Canada. Um, but, uh, but behavioral change, uh, other technological investments required to, to close the gap. Now, John, 60 to 80 billion per year. I'm going to keep coming back to that. Um, and right now, we're somewhere between 15 and 20 billion dollars per year. And you've pointed to, you know, a lot of private capital being on the sidelines, uh, being in savings accounts, um, not being invested. Now, RBC, of course, is Canada's biggest bank, a major investor. 
Uh, and presumably that this problem of private capital not being productive applies also to RBC. What's what's RBC's strategy for supporting this $2 trillion transition and, and getting its capital in the game? We're coming at this from a few perspectives. First is our own emissions. As a services company, you may not be surprised that they're not that significant, but we intend to address them from a net zero point of view and are already well underway on uh, on that through things like power purchase agreements uh, with some really exciting Canadian innovators. A bigger opportunity is dealing with clients uh, of all sizes, whether it's oil and gas companies or real estate operators uh, or the millions of consumers we deal with, helping them think about their own strategies towards net zero. Third is putting a lot more capital behind it. We've declared $500 billion Uh, in commitments to sustainable finance. And that's a global commitment. And we're looking for opportunities for that. Right now, there's a lot of opportunities for it. Uh, It's fascinating to see how companies and governments, in terms of their financing needs, are seeing that the cost of capital can be lower if you are demonstrating a climate benefit. And so treasurers and chief financial officers around the world are doing the math and figuring, hey, if I need to borrow a billion dollars or raise a billion dollars to build hospitals or highways or new factories, if I can demonstrate an emissions gain uh, or improvement uh, through the investment that I'm making, I'm going to be able to borrow that money uh, for less. Uh, So that becomes a real advantage in capital markets. Hmm. Um, John, now, no organization is without its criticism, um, and a report earlier this year identified RBC as one of the biggest investors, one of the five biggest investors in the world in fossil fuels um, among banks, um, and the biggest Canadian bank on the list. Um, So, you know, your bank is obviously still putting a lot of money into the fossil fuel sector. How do you reconcile that with your position on sustainable finance? It's a fair question, and I'm glad you raised it. The the particular report you mentioned, we have strong issues with in terms of its data and methodology, but I don't want to get sidetracked by by that because I think there's a more important question here as to whether we should be financing the oil and gas sector in this country uh, in any way to help us with the net zero transition. And our belief is that we are not going to get to net zero without the oil and gas sector. In fact, we're not going to reach our 2030 targets without the oil and gas sector. And we need to collectively invest in the sector to ensure that its transition and the technologies required for it are scaling and accelerating in a way that can reduce those significant emissions that that you mentioned. That seems counterintuitive in a way. What do you mean by uh, that we won't uh, meet our 2030 targets without the oil and gas sector, given that that the oil and gas sector is the biggest piece of the pie in terms of of the emissions that uh, that cause climate change in Canada. Consumers is the, uh, the the simple answer. We're seeing across North America people relying on oil and gas and other fuel products in significant and in some ways growing ways as they consider new and emerging technologies that are just not going to scale fast enough for anywhere near universal adoption. 
what's going on in the world of energy right now, especially with oil and natural gas, should be of concern to everyone, but particularly everyone who wants to ensure there's an orderly transition. We're seeing disruptions in fuel markets in Europe, in North America and Asia mm-hmm. that I don't think many people predicted a couple of a uh, couple of years ago. It could get worse this winter and get worse in ways that people will feel uh, in the cost of home heating uh, for farmers, in their uh, operations costs and the way they heat their barns, as well as in the way that we all transport ourselves, as well as the goods that uh, that we consume. This is really concerning. Right. I think it's fair to say. And is an indication of what may happen if we don't have a well-thought-out, well-capitalized, rigorous transition strategy over the long term. We're going to need to ensure that there is a reliable, affordable, and increasingly lower carbon option for oil and gas. And we believe Canadian producers can deliver that. But they require more capital. Uh, to invest in the technology and the processes for that reduction in their own emissions. There's also an enormous opportunity for the country through abatement and mitigation technologies. So CCUS, carbon capture, utilization and storage, uh, is a critical one. The oil sands producers, the uh, half dozen major ones, have formed an alliance that has a strategy to capture most of the emissions that come out of heavy oil production uh, in the Fort McMurray region, in the, Athaba- in the Athabasca Basin, that captures it and essentially liquefies it and pipes it and puts it back into reservoirs in the ground, leading to ultimately net zero emissions for oil sands production. That's a critical investment for Canada to allow us to continue to produce oil, and we'll need the same for gas, that we're all going to rely on for a number of years, and at the same time, reduce our net emissions in a technologically advanced way that actually also affords a lot of export opportunities for that technology and the know-how to the rest of the world that's looking for CCUS solutions. Hmm. Yeah, and, and I, I do note in the report that you know, of those 92 megatons that uh, that you project could be reduced from the oil and gas sector, a lot of that is through carbon capture and storage. So, so obviously a, a technology uh, that uh, needs to be a big part of Canada's net zero future. I've got I've got one last question for you, John, because I know you you've got other places to be. Um, COP twenty six. This, the Global Climate Summit uh, is about to kick off uh, in Glasgow. You know, in short, what are you, what are you looking to uh, to see uh, coming out of uh, COP26? I think everyone listening knows this is a critical, even has, a historic moment in the climate journey. And among the things that we're looking for from uh, from Glasgow is a clear indication especially from major governments, and we all know who they are, (laughs) that they not only have an aspiration, uh, but they have a plan to get to net zero. Mm. And that it is a reasonably coordinated plan with the rest of the world. We cannot afford a lot of fragmentation in how the world goes about this. Or the cliche, the world has only one climate, uh, and therefore we can't have a whole lot of different approaches to uh, the transition. We also need a lot more clarity, and it's coming, but uh, we, we, we should be demanding it, clarity on how we're going to mobilize the capital for this. 
you know, we're saying $2 trillion for Canada. There are very smart people out there putting their names to numbers like 50 to upwards of $100 trillion globally that will be required over the next uh, over the next 30 years. Okay. Where where are those tens of trillions going to come from? How are we going to mobilize it? How will the people behind those funds know that they're going to get a reasonable return on it? And so on. Those sorts of questions can be answered or at least clarified at Glasgow. Okay. John, we'll have to leave it there, but uh, but it's always fun speaking to you. Thanks again for uh, for joining us today. Thank you, Eric. It's been a pleasure. That's John Stackhouse, Senior Vice President at RBC. For a link to that new RBC report and for some supporting articles, go to this episode's webpage at podcast.smartprosperity.ca. Now it's time for the 60-second report. It's something we do every show. It's where we invite the author of a major new report to sum it all up in 60 seconds or less. This week, we're featuring a report from our own Smart Prosperity Institute. It's called A Green and Healthy Recovery. How different green economic recovery investments compare for advancing human health in Canada. To sum up that new paper, here's co-author John McNally. Our new report evaluates what kinds of post-COVID economic recovery investments will support environmental outcomes and human health. It compares five green recovery projects, energy efficiency retrofits for residential buildings and commercial buildings, installing solar or wind generation capacity, and investing in zero emissions public transit vehicles and personal vehicles. And it conducts these assessments in three cities in Canada, Calgary, Quebec City, and Waterloo-Kitchener. Overall, we find that investments in residential buildings and electrifying public transit offer the biggest environmental and health benefits across all three communities, with health and environmental benefits of transit being equal to 49 to 67% of investment costs and 53 to 70% of investment costs for residential buildings. Importantly, these are only a small subset of total benefits, since they don't include job creation or cost savings. Overall, investments in the clean economy can help human health, and policymakers should account for these benefits in decision-making. Thank you, John. For a link to that new report from Smart Prosperity Institute, we of course have a link to it on this episode's landing page at podcast.smartprosperity.ca. Now there's a lot happening in the green economy every week, more than I can cover on my own. For everything else, I turn to my colleague, Mike Moffat. Mike is a senior director here at Smart Prosperity Institute. And here he is with five other things happening in the green economy this week. I'm Mike Moffat, and here are five things that I'm watching this week. Number one, climate talks are set to resume this week with the United Kingdom hosting the UN COP26 summit. It's being called the most important climate summit since 2015 when the Paris Agreement was struck. The conference's success is already in doubt with major polluters like China and India not yet committing to more ambitious national goals. Number two, meanwhile, Canada will be sending a new representative to the UN conference, with Prime Minister Justin Trudeau appointing a new environment minister. The new cabinet has former environment minister Jonathan Wilkinson at Natural Resources and assigns former Greenpeace environmental advocate Stephen Guibault to the environment role. 
Number three, the UN climate summit will be rocky with this week's announcement that developed countries have fallen short of their climate aid commitment to poorer countries. Developed countries had aimed to contribute $100 billion in annual assistance by 2020 to help poorer countries adapt to climate change and help reduce emissions, a goal that likely won't be reached until 2023. Number four, British Columbia released a new climate roadmap, which pledges to increase the price on carbon pollution and to nearly eliminate industrial methane emissions. It aims to reduce emissions by 40% by 2030 and to achieve net zero emissions by 2050 in line with national targets. Critics point out that BC's emissions have been rising and that the province has not hit previous targets. Number five, the Biden administration is struggling to move its ambitious climate agenda. A $3.5 trillion spending package, which targets clean energy and infrastructure, has been held up in Congress, with West Virginia Democratic Senator Joe Manchin holding the deciding vote. I'm Mike Moffat, and those are the five things that I'm watching this week. Thanks, Mike. If you want to see a written copy of this week's top five list, Mike has put it online for you, and we've got a link to it at podcast.smartprosperity.ca. Well, that's it for another episode of Smart Prosperity, the podcast. For more green economy thinking and insights, why not check out Smart Prosperity Institute's website? That's at institute.smartprosperity.ca. And as usual, I want to remind you that the views shared on this podcast are not necessarily those of Smart Prosperity Institute. We just like having smart, evidence-based conversations about the green economy. I'm Eric Campbell. I'm broadcasting from the lands traditionally stewarded by the Algonquin Anishinaabe people, and I'm broadcasting from a podcast studio generously provided by the University of Ottawa. Thanks again for listening. The next episode is out November 10th.